morning we're going to look at Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Uh, This is a message usually given on Palm Sunday, right? It's about the triumphal entry, Uh, but it's in our series in Mark as we go along. Um, And uh, so we're going to bring God's word from this, and there's just so much truth in this passage. I trust and I pray today as we listen to God's word uh, that he will impact us with his truth. He will change us with the wonderful good news of this story. Really, the good news of this um, royal coronation of sorts that goes on with Jesus entering into Jerusalem. It's really a royal event. Um, nowadays, actually, the, uh, there's a, quite a fascination with royal events, um, both in the UK and in the United States, and I assume elsewhere, we, we tend to be fascinated by what goes on with the British royal family. Did anyone here watch, uh, was it three years ago or so, the, the wedding, Will and Kate's wedding? Did you see the wedding? Um, it was quite an event. I actually didn't see it, um, but, but I know others who did. I have uh, two nieces who are, are really caught up in the whole Will and Kate thing. Um, But it was a fantastic occasion. Uh, It was at Westminster Abbey. They had the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Rowan Williams, uh, did the marriage. And um, the Bishop of London gave the message. Uh, There were guests from all over the world for this incredible wedding, foreign royals, diplomats, uh, their personal guests. There were 1,900 guests at this wedding. Uh, We have a wedding coming up in our family, um, and I can't imagine having 1,900 guests at, at our wedding, we have about, about one-twentieth of that uh, for this wedding coming up. 1,900 guests. Uh, it was a public holiday in the UK. Over 5,000 street parties were held. Uh, one million people lined the route between Westminster Abbey and Buckingham Palace. 72 million people watched on the YouTube Royal Channel. I guess there's a Royal Channel on YouTube. Uh, at the peak, there were 36, uh, almost 37 million people watching the ceremony. The cost of the ceremony, um, the direct cost of the ceremony was uh, 20 million pounds. That's about $32 million. Can you imagine that for a wedding? Uh, they estimate, actually, if you take into account the security measures, and all, they had a lot of holidays, so all the lost wages, essentially, they estimate the total cost for the Will and Kate middle, uh, well, royal family wedding was $10 billion. Isn't that amazing? And really, why is that? Well, because we are intrigued by royal events. There's something that draws us to want to watch and, and be fascinated by royalty. Well, this story today is a story of a royal event. And it's actually uh, the most important, really, royal event, certainly in the New Testament, uh, the inauguration, at least, uh, of the king of the King of Kings. It's, it's an important royal event, far exceeding any other royal event in history, whether there were $10 billion spent or not. This is the most important royal event uh, up to this point in our storyline. And it is so unlike, so unlike anything we've seen or been accustomed to watch on television. So unlike it, unlike it, uh, in the lack of this, the degree of pageantry and dignity, perhaps, of a British royal wedding. Also unlikely in the nature of the king himself. This is a king unlike any king. This is a royal event unlike really any royal event. So let's pray 
and ask God to give us insight that our eyes might see just how unlikely, how, how different, how glorious this royal event is. King, the King Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this passage. We thank you, Lord, for this truth and what it is, what it represents. How glorious it is and how important it is for us to grasp this. Lord, would you capture our attention this morning far more than our attention would have been captured by any British royal event? Draw our eyes, draw our hearts to what's going on in this passage and and show us how important it is, how glorious it is, and what a difference it makes in our lives. And Lord, fill our hearts and send us from this place to proclaim your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Follow with me, Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1. You can follow on the overhead, or if you have your Bible, that's even better. Follow along. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. God's word from Mark 11, 1 through 11. This is a story uh, that is really amazing, packed full of truth. It's a huge transition, actually, in our story of Mark. As we've been following along up to this point, Jesus has actually made an effort to try to keep the news about him quiet. When people have been healed, he's told them to be quiet, to not tell others. We've learned about that. We've learned that he did that because he wanted to be king on his own terms. He didn't want them to come and make him a king on their terms, so he tried to keep it quiet. But now that all changes as he goes into Jerusalem. There's a transition in this story, and this is a a clear and emphatic statement by Jesus himself that he is the king, the promised king, the ultimate king, the king of kings. This is a clear and emphatic statement, a loud and bold statement by Jesus. The news is out now. He is the promised king. And his kingship is unlike any other kingship. It's different. It's glorious. It's on God's terms not ours. So let's take time just to walk through this passage and learn what sort of kingship this is, what sort of king this is that we see in Scripture. 
First off, he is the sovereign king. He is the sovereign king. Sovereign means the supreme ruler, the ultimate ruler, the one who rules all things. To have Jesus as king is to have him who rules over all time and all space. To have the one who rules over all time and all space and who assures that all his purposes are accomplished. That's a way to say he's sovereign. He rules over all time and space, all things, to make sure that his purposes are accomplished. He is the sovereign king. Check out the story. What happens in the story? Do you notice that we read 11 verses? And the first six verses are about this interaction with the colt, the donkey. Half the story here in Mark is about this interaction. Why would that be? Well, Mark, I believe, is making some things very clear to us. And one of those things is that this Jesus is sovereign. He's in charge. He has complete control over what's going to happen. And he wants to make sure that he enters into Jerusalem on his terms. He wants to accomplish his purposes. And so he's reigning over the circumstances surrounding something as seemingly trivial as a donkey, a colt, a baby donkey. So he is ready to go in and he tells his disciples, this is what you're going to find. Go into this village nearby, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. So he's prearranged this, that there's a colt, he knows it's going to be there, he's ordained that it will be there, it's never been ridden on, it's tied up, and he says, guys, when you go there, this is the one that we want to use. So you untie it, and they're going to say this, And this is what you're to say. And it happens exactly, exactly as he told them. This is teaching us some key truth about his kingship, that he is a sovereign king. He's in charge of everything. He rules over all circumstances. He rules over all time and space. He approached approached Jerusalem as the sovereign king. He comes as the one who is Lord of the universe. God himself in charge of all things. The one who has demonstrated his reign over storms and over sickness. Who has fed the 5,000. Who has raised the dead. Who knows the future and determines all things. He's the sovereign king as he enters Jerusalem. That's why these first six verses are here for us. That we would understand that. And though he is dressed as a commoner, though there's nothing in his appearance that would attract us, he is God in the flesh dwelling among us. He is the sovereign one who reigns over all circumstances, all situations for his purposes and his plans. That's who this king is. That's who's entering Jerusalem. He arranged everything. He he predetermined everything. It, and it's perfect. It happens exactly as he wants it to. That's a huge lesson, and that's a huge contrast to us, isn't it? Um, I just know myself. I, at times, am so unable to do what I'm supposed to do. I am sometimes unable just to remember what I wanted to do. Um, Have you ever had that experience? I have it all the time, where you go upstairs 
to get something. So say I go upstairs to get my watch, and I get distracted. I'm upstairs for a while, and I totally forget about the watch. I go back downstairs, and I, and I think, why did I ever go up there in the first place? And, there, and when I was younger, usually like I'd recover and like remember, like, oh, yeah, that's my watch. Now it's just like, I don't know. If it's important, someday I'll remember again. Um, I just forget things. I'm not able to plan. I can't plan my transportation as hard as I try. Jesus plans his transportation perfectly. Uh, two weeks ago, I was coming back from a personal retreat, and I was in Plymouth, Mass., and I wanted to be back. We had an evening meeting uh, with, with our leaders and wives at 6 on Friday. And so I thought, okay, I know, I know that's rush hour, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave extra early, and I'm not even going to go the normal way from Plymouth to here. You come up through the city. Uh, it takes about an hour and a half or so. I thought, well, I'm going to go all around the city. I'm going to go 495 the long way. It's like two hours, two hours and 15 minutes. And I'm going to leave early. I think I left at like 2 o'clock, thinking I was going to be okay. And usually that's the best way. But I hit like, I think it was two hours worth of traffic coming up. I don't know why, but that, on that day there were two hours worth of traffic. But, but I was really smart because I'm a good planner. And I had a buffer, right? Because if you, if you do the math, I left at 2 takes two hours plus, two hours of traffic. I'm still going to get there at six. So I'm looking good. I'm in Andover. And I'm thinking, I'm just going to make it. I'm going to get there in time for six. Just going to make it. And all of a sudden, I notice it's this smell. Um, smell coming out of the car. Um, and I thought, well, maybe that's the, you know, the brake smell. I thought, well, maybe that's, you know, those trucks are stopping and going. So yeah, all right. And I'm fine. And, I'm, and I'm, then I'm getting a little more worried. It's stop and go traffic. And I'm smelling it more. And then all of a sudden... Um, Smoke starts coming out of the front left wheel of the tire, the front left wheel of the van. Um, and, I, and I'm thinking, oh, no, I'm almost there. I'm almost home. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm an Andover on 495. And I'm in my mind thinking, okay, do I just keep on driving? I mean, how hot can this thing get? I mean, can I make it that extra five miles? And I realize, no, I, you know, it probably wouldn't be good if the van caught on fire and, and I died trying to get to our meeting tonight. So I had to pull over and and so forth and so on. And eventually I made the meeting later. I was late. But that's me. And I don't know, um, I imagine for you, you have circumstances like that. We cannot control what happens. And as well as we plan things out, as well as we, as we think wisely and think ahead, we cannot control the future. We don't know what's going to happen. And your best efforts are going to fall short, far short. Yet that's not the truth for Jesus. That's not the situation for Jesus. Jesus arranges what he wants, and what he wants always happens. That's the sort of king we have, and that is such comforting truth for me and for us to know he reigns, and he rules, and he accomplishes what he wants. I have a quote to read. You can project that. Alexander Carson says, as quoted in Trusting God, this about this truth of the sovereign king. It says, Nothing can be more consoling to the man of God than the conviction that the Lord who made the world governs the world, and that every event, great and small, prosperous and adverse, is under the absolute disposal of him who doth all things well, and who regulates all things for the good of his people. The Christian will be confident and courageous in duty in proportion as he views God in his providence as ruling in the midst of his enemies and acting for the good of his people as well as for his own glory. Jesus is the sovereign 
king. He's not just the sovereign king. He's the promise-keeping king. He's the promise-keeping king. He arranged all these things. He arranged for this cult and these circumstances for the cult, not just so it would be kind of a cool thing for his disciples to remember. Well, like, wow, isn't it cool? Jesus can determine that he's going to ride a cult, and, and it, it happens. Wow, that's neat. Can you do some more of that? And for me, you know, I'd like to see that. No, he has purpose in his sovereignty. He arranges this situation with the cult because there's a promise that he wants to keep. He's a promise-keeping king. And you can look in your Bible in the book of Zechariah. I will project this as well. If you want to find Zechariah, go before Matthew and back up a little bit past the Italian, the only Italian prophet in the Bible, Malachi. Uh, And keep on going back and you'll find Zechariah. That's not his name. His name is Malachi and he's not Italian. But uh, Back up to Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. And actually, Toby did a wonderful job in preaching from this text um, back in April. And I won't cover it like Toby did, so you can listen to that on, on, online. But verse 9, chapter 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's a promise in Zechariah given 400 or so years earlier. That the king would come and he would sit on a donkey, the foal of a donkey, a a baby donkey, and travel into Jerusalem. And this is a promise he made. And Jesus comes to keep. Actually, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that all the promises are yes in Christ. All the promises are yes in Christ. Christ came to fulfill God's promises for the glory of God and for the good of his People, that's you, for your good. All the promises are yes in Christ. He comes to fulfill this promise. He comes to fulfill the promise of coming in as a king. He comes to fulfill really all the promises in Scripture. Jesus is a promise-keeping king. Why? Why is he a promise-keeping king? Well, God's promises flow from the character of God. They flow from who He is. That's our ground, ultimately, who God is. His promises are pictures of aspects of His character. And in in the glory of who He is, He's made promises in different ways. He's made promises to His people. In His goodness, He's made promises to His people. And that comes from just his character, who he is. It's, it's amazing to think about God, uh, God is eternal. He's great. He's, he's self-satisfied. He's never lonely. He never has any lack. He's never been bored. He's completely self-contained. But in his goodness, in his glory, he has decided to create to make the universe and to plan out all these things to express his character, to express his glory, to express his goodness. It flows from who he is. And one of his characteristics is love. God loves. God delights in the 
this substantial happiness and goodness, good state for others. He delights in others. He, he loves. He wants others. He wants his people to find deep satisfaction, deep fulfillment. He has this love, actually, that is, is really infinite. It's beyond what we can grasp. His love is infinite in, in its dimensions. He loves that much. He loves in a capacity beyond anything we could ever grasp. That's his character. That's who he is fundamentally. Regardless of whether he had made anything ever or done anything that we would know about, this is who he is. It's fundamental. His love. He loves. He loves the fellow persons of the Trinity. This is an eternal love. And in that eternal love, there is a love for his people. And in that love, he made promises to his beloved people. In his love, he set his affection on people. He loved us before time began. He thought of us before time began, before creation. He thought of you and loved you deeply. And he promised to rescue his people for himself, to make his people his own. He promised to make you part of his family. And he promised you those things. But on the other hand, there's another characteristic of who God is. God is holy and just. He's perfect. He's sinless. There's no evil in him. There's there's no darkness in him. It's only goodness, only perfection. And he promised in his holiness to deal with sin. It says in the Bible, the wages of sin is death. He made a promised to Adam and Eve and the first man and woman and, and basically promised if you do this, if you rebel against me, you will die. He promised to be just, to punish sin with death, with separation from God. That's part of who he is. He's holy. He cannot allow sinful man to come into his holy and good presence. That's from his character. So those are two aspects of his character that that seem in some ways to go against each other. Because if he has loved his people, he he knew what would happen. He was in control of what would happen, that mankind would fall. Adam and Eve fell into sin and all mankind through them. And there's this broken relationship. Yet he has promised redemption to his people who are sinful people. And yet he's promised justice as well. So on one hand, there's this promise of love and redemption God made. On the other hand, this promise of perfect justice and holiness. There are these two hands of a promise. And as I said earlier, all the promises are yes in Jesus. And so Jesus comes as the promise-keeping king. He comes to fulfill the promises of God. He comes to demonstrate who God is in his humility and his reign and this entrance into Jerusalem. And then a week later, he fulfills the promise of God to reconcile his people to himself, to fulfill the promises of love and redemption, and dealing with justice, dealing with sin as well. And so Christ goes to the cross, bears our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us. 
so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ brought these two aspects of God's character, these two aspects of His promise together on the cross, satisfied justice and holiness by being the payment for our sins on the cross. The payment for your sins on the cross should you trust Him. And then satisfied His promise of love by providing a means of reconciliation and forgiveness and providing a way that He could make you His own and love you and have you enjoy His love forever. He's a promise-keeping King. And He accomplished this both through the triumphal entry and through His death and resurrection. And He will see the completion of all that is entailed in those promises for His people. He is a promise-keeping King. That's good news for us. He's the sovereign King. He's the promise-keeping King. And so He makes sure that His promises are fulfilled and they are all yes in Christ Jesus. For you, believer, if you are a believer, all the promises of God are yes in Christ. If you have Christ through faith, if you've turned from sin to trust Christ, and if you're not a believer, you can do that right now. Just simply turn from self-will and rebellion against God. Say, God, forgive me. Put your trust in Christ. And all these promises are yes for you. All of them are yes in Christ for you. This is the sort of king he is. He is the sovereign king. He is the promise-keeping king. And next, he is the humble king. Think of that. He's a humble king. He's the sovereign. He's promise-keeping. He gets things done that he wants to get done. But he's also the humble king. How many humble kings can you name? I can't think of that many. I, I, and it's, I mean, I'm not trying to say anything about any living king right now. I'm not making any comment. But looking in history at the kings of the past, there aren't a whole lot of humble kings. Good King Wenceslas, right? We know about him. He seemed pretty humble, uh, whether he was real or not. There's a couple others. King Louis of France and King Edward the Confessor, maybe. I, I don't know if you read their stories. But not a whole lot of humble kings. Most kings, understandably, are, are, are not humble. They're in control. They're in charge. They are the closest thing in, in the world to sovereignty. They rule and they reign and they have their way and they do what they want. And so many of them are corrupt in their power, right? We hear later on the stories, the sad stories of corruption and cruelty and so forth. They really are not humble kings, yet here is Jesus, the humble king. He's the sovereign king. He's the promise-keeping king. He's also the humble king. But he, he, if anybody, has all the reasons to be proud. There's no one like him. He rules over all. He, he's going into Jerusalem and the crowd is yelling and shouting, Hosanna! They're lifting up his name. They're giving him glory. He had, he had come into Jerusalem after years of successful ministry. He's going around healing the sick. His reputation precedes him. He's feeding the hungry, delivering the demonized, raising the dead, preaching the good news. He had amazed all of Israel. All the attention in, in many ways on that day as he came into Jerusalem was on him. And he had all the reasons, humanly speaking, to be proud. Could you imagine, just with me, could you imagine if, if there were some way, if a presidential candidate 
could do the things that Jesus was doing. Just imagine whatever your presidential candidate might be. I'll just throw a name out there. Rand Paul. I know some people like Rand Paul. And I'm not making any statement on who to vote for here. Um, Vote for who you think is most godly and wise for our country. But anyhow, Rand, Rand Paul. Imagine if Rand Paul was campaigning for the next presidency and he went around and started praying for people and they actually got healed. And, and, and that became known. He started providing free lunches and dinners to crowds from his own hand. He started redirecting hurricanes. Raising dead people. Maybe just dead Republicans. Um, and doing all those sort of things. And still remaining humble in that. Can you imagine that happening? No, I, I don't think so. I think power would corrupt. And they, he would use it for selfish gain. Yet here is Jesus as the king, the sovereign king, and he chooses to express his humility by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, a full of a donkey. He makes a bold statement, an emphatic statement of his humility. And it's not just for show. We know in reading the stories and following through that he is indeed humble. And we know what's going to happen at the end of this week. He is going to humble himself lower than us by bearing our sins and dying on the cross. He's going to humble himself to the lowest position. Lower than any of us could ever even conceive of humbling ourselves. He humbles himself in this way. It's genuine, full, glorious humility. And so riding in to Jerusalem on a donkey is an expression of his humility. He's glorious as the humble king. He could have ridden in on a chariot. He could have come in with siege works to attack Jerusalem like other kings had. He he could have come with a great army or a a war horse, but he comes on a baby donkey to express something about his kingship, that it is radically different than any worldly kingship, radically different than anything we've experienced in his amazing humility. It would be like, and it it, it even exceeds, if the next presidential candidate after he was or she was inaugurated, sworn in, and the ride down Pennsylvania Avenue, instead of riding in the limo or or walking, just hopped on a a little three-speed bike, put on a bike helmet, got on the three-speed bike, one with those little bells, ring, 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 and just started pedaling down Pennsylvania Avenue. Hi, everybody. That's, That's the, that would be a humble president, I think, to do that. And it would probably seem a little silly. Well, this is even more dramatic in many ways because this is the king of kings riding on a donkey, a baby donkey, into Jerusalem, making a statement about his humility and about the nature of his kingship. His kingdom comes not through the sheer exercise of power and domineering force, but through weakness. Hear this. This is his kingdom. Through weakness, humility, love, and gentleness. His kingdom comes forcefully and violently indeed, but not through the weapons of this world. This unlikely king is a humble king who does not come to exert his rights, but to humble himself below his subjects. There's no king like Jesus. And this aspect 
of his kingship and the kingdom is so important for us to grasp. He's a humble king. And to be a subject to him, to be part of his kingdom, to experience his kingdom, is to live under this truth of humility. And to have it change our hearts and change our lives. If we contemplate and grasp his profound humility, his amazing humility, his shocking humility, it should motivate us to humble ourselves below others. For we have lots of reasons to be humble. I have lots of reasons to be humble. Jesus didn't in himself, yet still humbled himself. So if if he deserved to be exalted and gave that up to humble himself to serve others, then certainly I who do not deserve to be exalted can humble myself and should humble myself. And the power to humble yourself comes through the example of Christ. It comes through contemplating him as the humble king. So next time you have that moment, maybe a year from now where you're tempted to be proud, or maybe the next second that you're tempted to be proud, the power to resist pride and repent of pride and walk in humility comes as you contemplate the humble king who humbled himself for you. So, husband or wife, when you're in the middle of this argu- that argument that you're going to have, how do you put the brakes on? Humility. How do you grasp humility at that moment? Because if you're like me, you know how hard it is it can be. I, I know we're all different, perhaps, in how we deal with conflict, but uh, my wife and I, every 10 years when we have a conflict, what goes on, in our lives, is we're both, we're both winners. We want to win the conflict. We're peace, uh, what do they call it? Peace breakers, I think. Uh, peace takers, whatever the w- word is. Like there can be peace fakers. Those who just, oh, I don't want to argue. I'll just do what you say. We're both like, I'm going to win. You're wrong. Um, and, and if I leave it to my natural instincts, we'll just keep on butting heads. So how do you put the brakes on? Humility. How do you get a hold of humility in that moment, right? That moment is difficult, isn't it? The emotions are there. All the reasons for me, like I have like 10 reasons why I'm right, and I can, I'm just can't wait to go through all 10 and win this argument. And by the way, I never do um, win. Uh, but but uh, yeah, we can talk about that later. <laughs> but but how, do we, how do we put the brakes on in that moment of intensity? Considering the humble king who humbled himself who was worthy of great exaltation, who deserves to win always and in every way, who gave that all up to ride in on a donkey and to die a cruel death on a cross for us. That's where the power is to put the brakes on and repent and say, honey, wait a second, let's just just stop right here if we can. I am sorry. The reason we're in a conflict right now is because of my pride and my sin, my insistence of being right, or whatever. Would you forgive me? Boy, does that make a difference in a conflict. As we grasp this truth of the humble king. As Carl Henry, the pastor and theologian, said when he was asked about staying humble, he said, how can anyone be arrogant when he stands beside the cross. How can anyone be arrogant when he stands beside the cross? Jesus is the humble king. Finally, Jesus is the holy king. He is the holy king. 
It says at the end of our section, he rode in on the donkey. People are shouting Hosanna. It says, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he goes into the temple. This isn't just because it was a tourist attraction. Jesus goes into the temple as God in the flesh. He goes into that temple as the one who presides over what happens in that temple. The temple is the place where where God's people met God's presence. It's the, the place where God manifested himself, where he showed the nature of who he is and what it is to relate to him. It was the place of his presence. It was a holy place. And he has... He had jurisdiction, has jurisdiction over his temple. And so Jesus coming into Jerusalem, he comes in as king, and and Mark says he goes to the temple and looks around. This is a surprise inspection of the temple, essentially. This is Jesus' surprise inspection. Have you ever had a surprise inspection? Maybe, kids, you've had a surprise inspection of your room. You didn't expect mom or dad to walk in when the mess was there. They came in and and found it a mess, and you had to clean up. Maybe at work you've had a surprise inspection. The boss showed up, or the boss's boss. You got there in the morning, you thought it was going to be a nice, chill day at work, and all of a sudden you heard the boss's boss is on the way, and you've got to go clean everything up, and you've got to sit at your desk and look like you're really busy, uh, and so forth. Surprise inspection. I I used to work for the, uh, the Army, and we had some surprise inspections, or, or kind of surprise inspections, short notice inspections, and you, you would be amazed to watch people run around to get things ready for that surprise inspection, cleaning things up, and, and uh, the guy who always had a, a messy lab, all of a sudden it was clean and perfect. Um, this is a surprise inspection. Jesus is showing up at the temple. This is the king coming in to inspect. He looks around. He goes in, rides it on the donkey, goes into the temple, and he looks around, it says. He's examining what is going on. And next week, we're going to see what he does as a result of that surprise inspection. This is God showing up at the temple. This is the Holy One showing up at his temple in authority, with responsibility over the temple. This is God, the Holy One. And it's so important as we understand Jesus coming into Jerusalem on that donkey to understand, yes, He is the humble King, but He's also the Holy King. Humility does not mean permissiveness. He's humble. He's gracious. He comes to rescue us through His death and resurrection. Indeed, but He's not permissive. He does not compromised in His holiness. He comes in as the one who's perfect in holiness, who rules and reigns. This is God in the flesh. This is just not simply my gentle Jesus. And all these things need to be held together as we understand Him as the King. He is the sovereign King, the promise-keeping King, the humble King. He is the holy King. Isaiah encounters God and His holiness. And this passage is a good one to contemplate and to pray over and ask God to show you His holiness. Isaiah the prophet had this encounter with God that's recorded in Isaiah 6. It says it this way, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne 
high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost. And I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is God that Isaiah has encountered in His holiness. And it undoes Him. And words really can't even fully convey the glory of His holiness, of God's holiness. And Isaiah's response is what our response would be in the same place of contemplating and seeing His holiness. He says, Woe is me! I am in deep, deep trouble right now. For God is holy in His perfections, in His greatness, in His glory. And I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. I am a sinful man and I live among sinful people. The story goes on. God promises Isaiah atonement for his sins. And similarly, in our story, the Holy One visits the temple and provides the fulfillment of atonement for sin. But He is the Holy One who comes into the temple as one who rules and reigns over the temple and over God's people. It's a surprise inspection. And if they had only known the hour of visitation, we're going to see what happens. They miss it. Jesus is the holy king. Do you know that he still walks among his people? He still dwells in the temple. You can read later in Revelation, in the beginning of Revelation, first few chapters, you see Jesus walking amongst the lampstands, walking amongst the churches in Asia Minor. And then He has words for those churches. Those are real specific churches. He walks among those churches. He knows what's going on. He knows the details. He knows the individuals, what they're doing, what they're not doing, where they are. He knows where they are corporately. He knows everything about them. He is the Holy King reigning over His church. And you know what? He is here with us as well. We are one of His churches. And He reigns as the Holy King among us. That's a sobering reality. He knows what's going on in our lives. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our need. He knows our faith. He knows our struggles. He knows our disobedience. He knows it for us individually. He knows it for us corporately. There's a sobriety to that, that He is the Holy King should cause us to, to 
Keep short accounts with one another. Keep short accounts with God. When we struggle with sin and weakness, and we will all the time, to, to run to His means of grace, to go to others, to confess, to seek help, to be sobered by the reality that the Holy King dwells in the temple, dwells among His people. He is the Holy King. And He reigns in His holiness for our good. He's gracious. He's humble. So His holiness is sobering, but it should cause us to run to Him for mercy and grace, which are richly provided for us. He is this humble King. He is this promise-keeping King. He is the sovereign King. And if the band could come up as we close. This is who Jesus is. A King unlike any other King. He is the unlikely King. He's all these things, and He's more. What I'd like us to do, just as we close, to, to, to consider, to think about for yourself, what aspect of His kingship do you struggle the most to grasp? What aspect of His kingship do you understand the least? To the extent that you don't grasp that will be the extent that you struggle with other things in your life and in your walk with God. To the extent that you grasp these truths will be the extent of, of your maturity in Christ and your fruitfulness in Him and your joy in Him, your peace in Him, your ability to love others in His name. So what I want to do just before we close in song is let's just take a minute just to be before the Lord. Perhaps close your eyes and just say, Lord, show me what aspect of your kingship do I need to understand better? Just, just that. Ask him for that. What aspect of his kingship do you need to understand better? And then just say, help me, Lord. Simple. Help me, Lord. Help me to understand. Help me to live in light of this truth. And then perhaps when you're done, just write that down or tell someone what the Lord spoke to you, how he used his word to speak to your heart. Then we'll close in song.